Something really amazing happened about 2,500 years ago. An impoverished, beat-down, weak, oppressed people rebuilt their entire city wall from the ground up in only 52 days. Even their unbelieving neighbors had to admit that this wasn't possible except by the hand of God. It was a miracle. But inside those walls, something even more miraculous was happening. These people were studying the Word of God and they were rebuilding their spiritual lives as well. Just like God had enabled them with tools and, and shovels and hammers and whatever other tools they used to rebuild their stone walls, now He was enabling them with His Word to rebuild their faith. When they heard God's Word... It made them hungry for more. It does that to us, doesn't it? It's kind of like that, that plant. It starts out little. You water it with a little bit of water. It gets bigger and it wants more water. People want more of God's Word. So the Israelites, they went out and they celebrated a festival that they had forgotten all about. And then they came back for more of God's Word. They came back for another half-day worship service. And I think we might get close to that today. This time, they spent about a quarter of the day listening to God's Word being read to them, and then they spent another quarter of the day with their response. They, they confessed and, and praised God. This is what their praise to God looked like. We read it as our first lesson today. They, they looked back at the history of God's relationship with humankind. And as they went through that history, the theme of God's relationship with humankind became very, very clear. God, the creator of all things, continued loving his people. And he kept on rescuing them from the horrible situations they ended up in. He rescued them from their, their slave masters in Egypt and he led them around in the desert. He, he provided for them there. He gave them water from a rock and miraculously provided manna and quail for them to eat every day. And in return... They built a statue of a cow and worshipped that instead of him. Instead of the God that physically led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day, they worshipped this cow. And God kept his promise to them. He promised to give them the land of Canaan, and, and doing that, he gave them victory over all the people who were living there already. And in fact, when they went into the land of Canaan, they came to wells that were already full of water and vineyards that were already producing fruit. Their new home was already furnished. They didn't even have to adjust the thermostat. It was, it was set up for them and already running. And as soon as things settled down there, they rejected God and turned to other gods. But God remained faithful to them. No matter how many times they turned their back on Him, He was still there for them. Maybe, maybe a good theme for this would be Law and gospel, or sin and grace. God is always faithful. And people, well, people aren't faithful. If people are full of anything, it's, it's really sin. Sinful human people deserve punishment. But good news. 
God deals in love. So this is how they summed up their, their praise. They restated the theme. They said, but in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So no matter how much his people deserved it, no matter how much rejection they gave him, God loved them. He is gracious and merciful. And when, when they saw this history, they didn't just say this is something in the past. They actually applied it to themselves. They prayed, Now therefore, O God, the great and mighty awesome God who keeps His covenant of love, do not let, therefore, all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. So they saw very vividly how the law and gospel were active in their own lives. This wasn't just something their fathers did. They, they didn't say, well, God, you're pretty lucky we're better than they are. They said, we did wrong. When they saw their failures compared to God's grace, there was nothing left for them to do but confess their failures to, to the God who loved them. And moreover, they, they saw their sin, they realized their guilt, but they also saw how God was disciplining them, trying to bring them back. They didn't blame their state of oppression on Him. Instead, look at, look at verses 36 and 37. Here they say, But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins... His abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. They knew that God wanted to bless them through this land. They knew what God wanted and they knew that God couldn't do that right now because He needed to call them back to Himself. He was giving them a wake-up call. And they were answering that call. They, they didn't reject God. for They didn't blame Him for being in a hard situation. They saw it as, as His call to come back to Him. And they took responsibility for their situation. They said, we brought this on ourselves. This is because of our sin. We did wrong. Have you ever had that friend who was just in a horrible relationship their significant other just doesn't seem to care about them at all. Doesn't care what they want. That person just does whatever they want without, without regard to how it hurts the other person. And, and worse, maybe they even go out and cheat on them. You wonder to yourself, why, does, why doesn't he just leave her? Or why doesn't she leave him? It's awful. It's, it's 
a disgusting situation. It makes us feel angry. Well, that's how God's relationship is with us. That's how God's relationship is with people. It's how it was with the Israelites, and it's how it is with us too. So many times, we live our lives like we just don't care what God thinks. We do whatever we want, not worrying about what God wants. And worse, we even cheat on him, don't we? We put other things or other people or maybe ourselves in in the place where he should be. And on top of that, we add insult to injury by, by saying, you know what, God, I don't have to be faithful to you, but you better be faithful to me. If you don't give me everything I want, if you don't treat me well, I'm going to be mad at you. When we see the history of humans' relationship with God and, and we see the history of our own relationship with God, we're hit by the law too. We see that we have failed and, and we're left with nothing to do but confess. We want a one-sided relationship from God. We want everything from Him and we don't want to have to do anything for Him unless we feel like it. That's a shameful thing, but we need to confess that that's how we feel a lot of the time. And we want that one-sided relationship, and a one-sided relationship is what we get, but maybe not, not how we had in mind. In return for all our unfaithfulness, in return for our cheating, in return for all our rejection, and despite all our misguided ideas about who he should be or what he better do for us. In return for all that, God gives us love. We are that scumbag, cheating, significant other. We deserve to be dumped yesterday, but God doesn't dump us. He does the opposite of dumping us. He sent his son Jesus to pay for all of our unfaithfulness. He doesn't hold our unfaithfulness against us. That's amazing. That's the best news. That's, that's the news the Bible has for us. That's the gospel. We're saved, not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. If that's not a one-sided relationship, I don't know what is. So the Israelites could see that too. They didn't leave it with confession. The law had led them to confess. They realized their sin But they had the gospel too. They had the promise of the Savior. And they could very clearly see how God kept his promises throughout the ages. They knew he'd keep his promise of the Savior too. They knew that he wasn't going to hold their unfaithfulness against them. You don't get a deal that good and then do nothing. So this is what they did. This is the most exciting rebuilding in the entire book of Nehemiah. Right here. You thought thought that they're... Their stone walls around Jerusalem were a mess before God came and helped them build those up. That's nothing compared to the ruins their spiritual lives were in before God. They realized that and confessed their sins, and that that was the start. God led them to confess. And Jesus' saving work on the cross, that's what made this all possible. And they finished that work of rebuilding by rededicating themselves to God. This is what they said. In view of all this, so in view of our unfaithfulness and your always being faithful to us, God, in view of all this, 
we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So they actually made a big legal document in writing and had all their leaders sign it. If you, if you had your Bibles open right now, you'd see a list of 84 names, Nehemiah, and then um, 17 Levites, 21 priests, and 44 political leaders. These guys represented the whole nation of Israel. They signed this document, rededicating themselves to God. They were serious about staying true to him. So verse 28 continues with the promise of that document. It says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all these commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. So the Israelites were declaring a complete return to living by God's will. Not just part of it, the whole thing. And they aren't just leaving it at a blanket statement of, we're going to do what God wants, just all of it. They, They actually identified some of their specific weak points. And these are areas that they had struggled with in the past, and they, they, they identified these and they addressed them specifically. The first of these is in verse 28. They said, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Throughout their entire history, the, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, had this nasty habit of, of marrying their unbelieving neighbors. And first off, this was wrong for them because God told them as a nation, you're not allowed to do this. And second, this was extremely dangerous for them because it brought them closer to this pagan influence and further away from God. So they identified that threat, and they they knew that this was something they struggled with, so they put it down in writing and said, this is one of the things we're going to really focus on not doing. This is how they're going to show their dedication. They wanted to stay away from bad influences. Uh, The next area they struggled in is making worship a priority. So they promised, when the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. The Sabbath day was their day of worship. They weren't supposed to do business on that day. That was was their day of rest. That rest showed them a picture of what the rest they had spiritually with God, looked like. And again, throughout their history, they had this nasty habit of, you know, working six days, and then, you know what, we can get some more work and and help our financial situation by working on the Sabbath too. So, they promised, God, we're going to fight this temptation too. And then the Sabbath year, every seventh year, they were to um, not plant any crops, they weren't, and they were supposed to cancel all debts. And that was a way for them to show their trust in God, to show that they trusted in Him to provide for them. And when they weren't doing that, it showed that they didn't trust in Him. They weren't giving Him the honor He deserved, so they promised to return to that trust as well. And now the last, the last several verses of this chapter all deal with neglecting God's house. It's a long section. Here we go. 
We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in our law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of our Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. So that's a long list, and it's a lot of very specific things, things that are very Old Testament in nature, but they all deal with giving time, or effort, or money. And, and that's another way to honor God. These are ways that they had, they had failed to live up to. When they, and when they failed to live up to these, these tasks, first off, they're not showing God the honor he deserves. And if that's not bad enough, when they're not doing these things, just practically speaking, the temple couldn't function properly. These are, these are kind of the operating requirements of the temple. They need wood to burn sacrifices. They need food for the priests who work there. So if it's not bad enough that they're not showing God the respect that God deserves themselves, now that lack of respect also leads the temple not to be able to function. So the people who do want to show God respect the way that they should, they can't do it either. So they promised to stay true to these things because these were, these were weak areas for them, and they wanted the temple to function because they wanted to give God that glory. Okay, so the Israelites had this special ceremony, and they wrote out a legal document, and they, they had this big gathering to rededicate themselves to God. That's a good example for us, too. After we confess our sin, and when we hear the hope we have of forgiveness, knowing that God forgives us, we want to dedicate ourselves to God as well. So what does that look like for a modern Christian? I don't see anyone out there this morning with any cattle or, or fruit or wood to put in the collection plate in a few minutes. And I think, I think that's maybe a good thing. But their, their example stands. There are things we can learn. First off, just the fact that they had a ceremony shows the level of dedication and, and zeal they had. They were excited about this. They were, they were determined to follow God's will, to live to glorify him, to live in thanks for what he had done for them. 
we, we can learn from that and, and be equally excited to dedicate ourselves to God. Second, they, they picked specific temptations that they had trouble with. And they named them specifically. So, friends, if you have that sin that you struggle with, don't be shy about it. Admit it, at least to yourself and to your God, and then hit that thing head on. Do whatever it takes to help yourself stay dedicated and stay away from that sin. Maybe, maybe that looks like not watching certain movies or TV shows. Maybe, uh, maybe it looks like not going to a certain place even though all your friends are going there. Maybe it looks like not listening to certain music because it, even though it has really good reviews. Do whatever it takes. And, and now we can, we can look at the specific things that they listed too. First, intermarriage with unbelievers. Now, as 21st century Christians, we're no longer told by God that we're not allowed to marry people outside our country. But the Israelites understood the powerful effects that people have on one another in, in close relationships. And they wanted to be careful about that. And we can too. We can be very careful with how we interact with unbelievers and, and allow them to affect our lives. You know, it's probably a good thing that we have relationships with unbelievers because that's where we get our opportunities to share the word God has for us, the message that God has for them too. But like the Israelites, we can be careful about how we allow that to affect our faith. They also identified worship as a trouble area. And if that's not relatable, I don't know what is. They, they had failed to make worship a priority. And, and we can dedicate ourselves to worship as well. When we gather here today, what we're doing right now is showing God our thanks for what he's done for us and honoring him in a way that he definitely deserves. And it's not just one way. It's not just us to God. When we're here on Sunday morning, wonderful things are happening for us too. God comes to us in his word and in his sacraments, in, in baptism and communion. He, he comes to us to tell us I forgive you. I love you. I'm never going to leave you. He comes to build our faith up. I think that's worth dedicating ourselves to. Um, the last thing they, they looked at, they finally talked about supporting the temple. And, and that looks a lot different for us today. Like I said, we, we don't have any cattle or anything here today. But that example stands too. That was a long section we read, all the different tithing, all the different things that, that they promised to do. You know what? I think we have at least as long a list of things that we can do here too. And thanks be to God, I see a lot of these things happening already. This, maybe it looks like something as, as simple as setting up the altar on Sunday morning. Maybe it looks like folding bulletins or, or hooking up all this audio equipment. Maybe it looks like playing music for Sunday. Maybe it looks like bringing treats or setting up the treat table. Maybe it looks like collecting the offering, helping as an usher, or taking the flags down when we put them up. The options here are really limitless. And you know what? Maybe it's something just as simple as, 
as putting an offering in the plate when it comes by. There are so many ways we can show ourselves, show, show our dedication to God. There are so many ways that we can do that, dedicate ourselves. We can definitely make worship and, and supporting the church big parts of our dedication as well. The dedication we see here from the Israelites is fantastic. It's really an inspiring example for us to follow. It's amazing. Their desire to keep the covenant they made is totally motivated by God. It's heartfelt. It's genuine. They're not faking this. Wonderful. Amazing. Nehemiah's work is done. He came. He got that wall rebuilt. And more importantly, the city that was spiritually in ruins, he's helped rebuild that as well by the power of God. So, his work was done. He went back to his place in Artaxerxes' court in the capital of Babylon. And now, if, if you've finished the book of Nehemiah, read ahead, you know where I'm going with this. Fifteen years later, Nehemiah has to go to Artaxerxes and say, hey, can I go back to Jerusalem? Well, why did he need to go back to Jerusalem? The Israelites had abandoned pretty much every single thing that we heard about today. Everything they dedicated themselves to was out the window. They had promised to stay faithful to the Sabbath day by they, they worship God in the way he wanted. They weren't doing that anymore. They were working on the Sabbath trading again. And in fact, they, they didn't even leave the temple to God. They, they were carrying out business there. They were intermarried with their, with their unbelieving neighbors again. Almost, almost hard to tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever at the time. And, and do you remember that, that jerk, Tobiah, from a few weeks ago? He's the guy who said, oh, Israelites, it, your wall is so bad that if, if a fox walked on it, it would fall down. That jerk, Tobiah, they had welcomed to live in the temple itself. They gave him some storerooms in the temple as his apartment. And these are storerooms where they were supposed to keep the offerings, the things that would keep the temple running. So even if they were bringing those things, they wouldn't have anywhere to put them. They had fallen so far. And the rest of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah trying to wake them up again. And he had to bring the law to them again because they were guilty and they needed to confess. Does that make you feel hopeless? It's downright discouraging to see how far those Israelites fell in such a short amount of time and especially after such an amazing display of dedication and commitment and maturity toward God. Why do we even try to dedicate ourselves to God if we're just going to fail? And you know what? <laughs> this is the end of the Old Testament. There's no more historical things recorded for us. This is it. People are unfaithful. End of the Old Testament. That's no good. But you know how the New Testament begins. 
the very next historical thing the Bible records for us is the birth of a baby boy, a baby named Jesus. And we hear about the Savior who came to pay for all people's unfaithfulness. That's why we live for God. That's why we dedicate ourselves to him. It's not our confession. It's not our dedication. It's his life, his death, his resurrection that gives us hope. We have nothing to fear. Our theme for our study of Nehemiah has been rebuilding with God. And God has rebuilt our relationship with him. Our relationship that we ruined, he rebuilt for us. He's faithful to his promise to forgive us. Always. Friends, as we keep living, as we keep failing, let's keep confessing. And in the peace of God, where we know we're forgiven and that he doesn't hold our failures against us, let's keep dedicating ourselves to him. Let's keep dedicating ourselves to live to his glory. Amen.